So um, podcasts are funny. Podcasts are like magazines, uh, audio magazines in a sense, um, and they're very popular. Uh, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I feel like they make me um, just informed enough to be dangerous, you know, uh, so I have just enough information to be kind of useful with it. Um, and, uh, and so nevertheless, it's kind of easy listening, and I like doing it. I don't know what your podcast of choice is. Um, some of them, it's like just... Uh, they're terrible, you know, but some of them are really interesting. Malcolm Gladwell is a author, uh, thinker that I, I enjoy listening to a lot. He's really, in, he's got some great books, uh, and uh, he has a podcast called Revisionist History, and uh, recently I listened to an episode, and it was about the Boston Tea Party, so I'm kind of just in the back catalog of his, and uh, he, was, he kind of threw out this idea that our origins as a country might not have been as noble as we thought that they were, uh, or as they seemed that they were. Um, and so his, the whole episode is sort of about how the Sons of Liberty, the guys who tossed all the tea into the Boston Harbor, uh, how they were maybe more like um, mafia mobsters uh, who were upset about their mar- profit margins getting cut a little bit, um, more so than like really idealistic uh, champions of democracy or something. Um, but uh, that's, this is like Malcolm Gladwell's whole thing. Like that's his whole shtick is like, I'm going to go through and I'm going to do this process uh, of, of revising history, okay? And so uh, that's, that's what revising means, is to look at something again. So I'm going to look at history again, and I'm going to try to consider what might be overlooked or misunderstood in history. And uh, in, a, in a sense, that's what I want to do this morning. I think that's what the text does for us, is actually gives us a chance to do some revisionist history on our own stories, um, our own history, and, uh, and the deal is, I think the reason why this is important is that when we see our history, our past rightly, we can understand our own origin story when that's happening, when we actually are accurate in that. We can be honest about where we are today and rightly focused about the future. We can focus on the right things in the future. Okay, so this is an important thing to do, and it's what the text takes us to uh, in Ephesians. And, uh, but the problem that I keep running into when I'm thinking about how we understand our stories and uh, having a right grip on our history and the reason why we even need to do some revisionist history uh, is that we often misunderstand our own history, our own stories, our own experiences. We oftentimes have a, have a narrative running in our minds uh, that is contrary to what the facts really say. And uh, in a sense, I, I think uh, I'm, I, I have been to counseling. I will go through counseling. I'm a big fan of counseling, but in a sense, you're helping, you're paying somebody to help you accurately understand your brokenness in the past and connect it to your brokenness in the current, right? So there's, there's some sense in which we pay people good money to help us understand our stories. And, uh, and if you're a follower of Jesus, here's this great, amazing reality, is that you are living right now a rescue story. You're living in a rescue story. That's your story is a rescue story, and it's your own rescue. Uh, that's so often not the way that we relate to God. Our story, our understanding of the, the narrative that we're living, actually doesn't inform the way that we relate to God day to day. And it's heartbreaking. It's tragic. And it's wor- it's, it steals our worship. Uh, I wasn't going to share this, but there's a, there's a tower in uh, San Francisco. It's called Millennium Tower. Has anybody heard of this tower? Okay. Yeah, some people are nodding their heads. Okay, why? It's going to fall over, I think. It's just a matter of time. It's a, like 56-story building, and it has sunk 14 inches in the last 10 years. Uh, actually, it's tilted 14 inches, sunk 18 inches. Okay? And so that's not good news if you're, like, living in this building. 
Uh, yeah, yeah, gotcha. Um, and uh, the other thing is, I, I feel like the, the people who are owning the condos are like really upset. I'm like, I think I might be upset if I'm next door to the condos. Like, how far is this happening? Um, but, but when our foundations are really flimsy, when they're built not on solid things, okay, it becomes really dangerous for everybody in our worship, our life of worship that we are constructing. When it's not founded on the right things, it becomes really flimsy and it will fail us. And so as a church, we're studying these first three chapters of Ephesians. These chapters outline in a concentrated way the fundamentals of the gospel. How does the gospel really work and what does it accomplish? And so it outlines that, the foundations of our worship. And so we want to build on a firm foundation on the fundamentals of the gospel. And so if you're going to have a firm foundation, you need to understand your own story, that it fits into a bigger story. Chris talked about that a few weeks ago. It's really helpful just to see that the plan that God has is not a plan for your awesomeness. Well, in a sense it is, but it's only in so much as it's connected to Jesus, okay? The plan for the fullness of time is that God is uniting all things in Christ, okay? And so you need to understand how your story fits into his, uh, but you've got to understand your story. And that's what this text does this morning. It's why I'm like really, uh, we could just read it and probably be done. And you're like, I wish we would do that, but we're not going to do that, all right? There's just too much goodness to talk about. So here's the deal. If joyful worship is missing somehow in your life, okay, we talk about joyful worship all the time. It's what we're aiming for as a church is a revival of joyful worship that advances God's kingdom, okay? So if there's some sense in which that's not the constant experience of your week, um, and I'm not gonna make you raise your hand, but I'm, uh, you could raise your hand and it would be pretty prevalent to see whose experience is not joyful worship moment to moment all week long but where it's missing okay where there's either boredom with your faith or there's discouragement or insecurity I've experienced like like all those things this week okay so like I get it Uh, I don't think the answer is for you to try harder okay I don't think just coming in here I want you to just be able to take this really deep breath I don't think it's that you need to try harder Okay? I don't think that God is um, grading you and giving you a poor grade on your worship this morning. I think God is trying to convince you of a great, amazing truth this morning. I think you need to understand your spiritual history, and that will transform your current worship. Okay, If you don't believe me, let's like, see, see in this text. Okay, um, uh, I'll tell you, I, I have this goal to be the most secure person I know. I have, I, this is a weird goal. You might be thinking, like, that's a weird goal. I, I, I have kind of subconsciously, now consciously I'm setting this. Uh, I want to be the most secure person that I know. Um, but it's not easy to do that. It's not easy to be the most secure person you know and not be arrogant. Okay, so those are kind of two hard things. Uh, but we're so insecure in so many ways, but I think God's Word wants us to be secure in one very important way. And so if you could leave here today, if you want to, I'm telling you, it's like I sent out an email this week and there was like a quick read portion at the top. This is the quick read portion of this, of this message. Uh, I want you to leave here today knowing where you stand with God. I want you to leave here today knowing exactly where you stand with God Almighty. I want you to be crystal clear about the nature of your relationship with the King of the universe, the living God. So what if you could have that? You know, again, just kind of consider what, it, what, would, what would your life be like? What would change for you if you, know, if you knew for sure how God felt about you, what he thought about you, what he decided about you today? What would change for you? And just think about that. And, and uh, the deal is, I think you are 
insecure about who you are spiritually because you've forgotten or you never understood who you were spiritually, okay? And so you have been saved, rescued, resurrected from death by grace and grace alone. You have been saved by grace and grace alone. That's what the text is going to tell you. You're like, I heard, I've heard that. Good. So here's, the, here's, the, here's kind of the movements of the text. We have a problem. Uh, what's our problem? There's a process by which the problem is solved. What's the process? And then we're given a purpose. Uh, what's the purpose that we have now that uh, our problem has been solved? Okay, so if you didn't catch that, those are three Ps, all right? And uh, I, want you, I want you to do that. I don't mind having some alliteration mixed in because I think uh, just maybe, maybe uh, later on this week uh, when you're in a really low moment or maybe later on this week when you're just driving in your car and you have a great moment, you're, you're just, the Spirit might use some moment to just click back into place for you this remembrance that I had a problem and there was a process that solved it and now I have a purpose, okay? So you can remember that. And uh, in all of that, you can remember that you're saved by grace and grace alone. Only grace. Okay, and so we've been in Ephesians. The letter opens up with this explosion of worship where God has chosen us, adopted us, redeemed us, bestowed on us an inheritance and sealed us with his spirit as a down payment of that inheritance. Uh, That's all that's happening in Ephesians chapter one. It's like just jam-packed with all these, uh, these goodies, so to speak, that we're pulling out of this spiritual blessing bag that God has given to us, bestowed on us. You're still pulling out these things. It's not like I'm pulling out like a, a Chinese finger trap or I'm pulling out like, you know, some, some some of the Halloween candy my daughter got this week was like, I don't even know where you found that stuff. That's like old candy. Okay. So you're pulling stuff out and it's like, it's, it's king size everything. Okay. When you're pulling out these blessings. And then Paul prays for the Ephesian readers and Duke led us last week in, in a time of prayer. Um, but, um, He's praying that uh, our hearts will be open to see the hope we have in Christ, the riches of his inheritance, and the immeasurable greatness of his power. You know, those three words are like, it's like three synonyms back to back to back. It's just kind of like the awesome greatness, immensity of God's power. It's like he's just trying to drill it in your head. God is super powerful, and he exercised, exerted that power when he raised Jesus from the dead. That's what was happening was power was being exerted, and that's the same power that he has towards us who believe believe in Jesus. Um, and so that's the same power that was shown when Jesus was res- resurrected from the grave. Jesus, Jesus's body was dead and buried, but the grave could not hold him because of the power that God exerted, okay? And uh, that's God's immeasurably great power towards us, okay? So that's where we're going to p- pick it up in chapter 2, verse 1, okay? Chapter 2, verse 1. Um, turn there if you, if you have a Bible or if you have an app. Um, and, uh, and here we go. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We're just going to stop there. So remember, this is telling our history. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So what was our problem? Okay, it's right, right here in the text. We were dead. Okay, it's just, it's just dead. Okay, that's what he says. When I, was, when I was working on this message, okay, my wife and I were in New Braunfels uh, last weekend, and I was working on this message. I went to a coffee shop super early in the morning, it was before the sun was up, and uh, I was just trying to get some space to, to study and think about this message. And uh, I walked into the coffee shop, and uh, I was, you know, I hadn't, I'm at a coffee shop because I hadn't had any coffee. And so I was just kind of like still waking up. It was really early, and it was still dark, and it was kind of misty outside. And I look up, and uh, behind the counter, there's three people with their faces painted like skeletons. And uh, I was not expecting to see this. Uh, and I was like, shh should I go somewhere else? 
or do you have coffee for me? You know, this is really what I needed to know. Uh, and, uh, but this time of year, uh, what they were doing, they were actually celebrating a Dia de los Muertos festival that was happening right outside of, like I was sitting at a bench looking out of a window, working on this, staring at a bunch of people setting up for a Day of the Dead festival. And I was like, man, death is just all around us, isn't it? And uh, it's like, it's a festival right here around me. People dressed up, uh, painted faces like skeletons. And um, ironically, that festival has nothing to do with Halloween. What we have is sort of this confluence of these festivals, holiday celebrations that all just happen to be aligning with one another, where uh, Halloween is something altogether different. And uh, it pulls, it, Halloween actually, All Hallows' Eve, pulls uh, from a, a Celtic holiday that has nothing to do with that Catholic holiday. So it's really just a big mess of death, okay? It's like a big uh, death huddle on the end of October, beginning of November, okay? And, um, and there's a lot of people in this time of year that are dressed up like they're dead. Or they turn their front yards into graveyards, okay? They take a good, they, they like, these are people who take good care of their yards and all of a sudden they make it look like a graveyard. And uh, to me, I'm like, this is very scary. You might be that person and it's like, hey, you did a great job, okay? Because it looks like it. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a little bit off-putting to me, um, because it's interesting how these celebrations are trying their best to laugh at death. So if you want to know, Dia de los Muertos is trying to, like it's an expressed desire to, uh, in a sense, mock death and to laugh at it. Um, ironically, somebody who studied that holiday says, as much as the culture says, yes, laugh, at funerals nobody's laughing. There's no laughter there, there's sadness. And so we're living in trying to laugh in the midst of the absolute terror that death is all around us. It's everywhere. I think in a lot of cultures, we just try to put up blinders to it. Okay? Halloween has nothing to do with death for me. It's just how can I look most like a character from Frozen? Okay? And uh, I thought I did a pretty good job. I mean... Christoph has better hair than I do, but I can't, that's like a systemic issue. I can't address that, okay? Uh, so um, the, um, the more common sight, though, is not uh, seeing people who are alive that look like they're dead. This is, this is the more common sight that we see throughout the course of the year is actually that dead people looking like they're alive. That's what the scripture just says. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So the majority of people on this planet, they look alive, but they're actually spiritually dead. So this time of year, we see people who are alive looking like they're dead. And the scripture is saying most people are spiritually dead, and they're kind of just acting like they're alive. And, uh, and so for this brief moment, this is the interesting thing to me about Halloween. For this brief moment uh, where front yards are turned into graveyards before they have bright lights and candy canes, this brief moment, they're telling us what the spiritual condition is for those who are separated um, from God by their sin. So the weird thing is, when we make our yards look like they're graveyards, it's actually, for most people, more accurate. It's more accurate. And so what does this spiritual death look like? Because we're saying we're dead in our trespasses, yet we would say, I'm alive. I mean, I think I'm alive right now, okay? So we're not having like a sixth sense moment where like we're all interacting with each other, okay? So I think I'm alive. So what kind of death is this? 
It's a spiritual death. And so what does that look like? He, he explains uh, how we are the walking dead, so to speak. He says that we were following the course of this world. Do you see that? You're dead in your sins and your trespasses in which you once walked. That's it. You're the, how you're living your life is in a life of death, the walking dead. How you're following the course of this world. And so following there, it's not, it's not kind of like a, hey, I'm just kind of uh, just, uh, it's more like a, um, a, a trail of tears where there's people who are being forced down this path. You're being mastered by uh, this thing. You're not freely and gladly walking along this path. You're being mastered by the course of this world. And then he says, following the prince of the power of the air. And so that's kind of like a mysterious, like he's like, who, who's that? Like, is that a good guy, bad guy? Like, who, how, who's the prince of the power of the air? It's like this kind of mysterious phrase. And so it, it, he goes on, he explains, he says, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Okay, so who's the prince of the power of the air? It's Satan. So in other places throughout the, throughout the text, uh, Jesus will explain who this prince of the power of the air is, what kind of influence Satan has on the world right now which is this, it was, it's a significant influence. He's not, he's not um, just over here just shot, you know, shooting like, uh, you think my, my mother-in-law has this bone arrow that has like fake arrows, you know, and you shoot them and nothing happens, right? Lucy shot me with one of them, I think, and nothing happens. But, but the enemy is shooting real arrows at us. And it um, says he's the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Okay, and so, so what he just gave were kind of three ways in which our spiritual death plays itself out. We're following the course of the world, following Satan, and then we're following our own desires. Okay, so those are these three different ways that spiritual death is evidenced, it's playing out in your world, okay? And so here's what's interesting to me about these three. They're all saying the same thing. The, 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 underlying, the underlying issue, the, the core problem, the virus, so to speak, that, that is underneath all three of these is the same thing. The course of the world, the influence of Satan, the desires of your flesh are all working to do one thing, and that's be centered on yourself. Martin Luther talked about it, uh, and uh, the way he would talk about it is curv- curvitus and say, curved in on yourself. That's what happens with sin. It curves you in. It... See that, guys? I also went as a ninja for Halloween. Uh, Got to get the bigger stage up here, guys. Uh, no, uh, uh, curvatus and say, bent in on yourself. That's what sin does. Don't you see? That's what happened with Satan in the very beginning. What was Satan's uh, issue with God? He wanted to be him. That's, that's his issue. He wanted to put himself in the center. And uh, the crazy thing is, I interacted with a college student one time, a, a good friend of mine. He came to, came to my wedding, a guy I love. His name is Winston. And uh, he was an exchange student from China. And uh, Winston had, uh, he, because of, I think, some language translation, uh, and then also just because of his natural disposition, uh, he just had no filter. And it was amazing. Uh, a lot of times he would say things, and I was like, wow, you're saying what other people wouldn't say. And I, I shared the gospel with him one time, and uh, what he turned and looked at me, and he says, um, if there is a God, I don't want to worship him. I want to be him. And uh, I was like, whoa, this is some evil stuff. 
but I think we have a misunderstanding of evil. We make it look like ghouls or like um, glowing red eyes or pitchfork kind of evil. And evil is not like that. It's much more covert. It's actually just being turned in on yourself, rejecting God, putting yourself at the center of the universe. It's what all three of these things are doing. Do you see that? So our death and our sins and our trespasses has everything to do with being a self-centered. Okay, putting ourselves in God's place. And so uh, the, 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 I'm not going to keep going down that road. Okay, so along with the rest of mankind, under the influence of Satan, we are dead. Okay, so, so remember that this is where you were. You were actually in a tomb of your own desires, destined for destruction, forever separation from God. That's what he says, you're a child of wrath. Is God's wrath burning hot? Is it going to create a lake of fire that's going to burn forever? Yes. But you know what the primary problem with being in that lake is? You're separated from God. Uh, Donald Miller, uh, in a book called Blue Like Jazz, really old, and I don't remember most of it, but I will never forget this um, illustration that he gave of hell, what, this, what it means to be under God's wrath eternally. And he described a, an astronaut uh, who uh, had gotten separated from his spaceship, but he was in a suit that could recycle his body fluids and everything, keep him alive. It was going to keep him alive, and it would never break. Okay, and so he was floating in orbit, but the space shuttle couldn't catch him and uh, couldn't rescue him, and so he, they just went back to Earth, and so he's just out there in space by himself floating in orbit, and his hair grows over his eyes, and his fingernails grow, so he can't move, and he can't see, and he can't die. Forever. all alone. That is what hell is like. That is what wrath is. That's what we have asked for when we are curvetous and say, when we're curved in on ourselves, when we want to be at the center of the universe. You know what God's wrath is? I'll let you be at the center of your universe by yourself forever. We think hell is this place where we're all pushing a rock up a hill by, you know, together uh, forever or something like that. That would be a, a vast improvement. That's not what hell is. Hell is being forever by yourself, forever alone, forever disconnected from the giver of life. That's what it means to be a child of wrath. And so we are entombed in these desires that set us on a trajectory towards that. Do you see the horror that is laid there? That's horror. That's your story. You were born into that narrative. That's how you came into this world. Uh, we're going to have a, my wife's going to have a baby in the next couple of months. Hopefully she'll be uh, beautiful and healthy and everything's going to be great. The, the Boons just had a baby last night. Okay. Claire was born in case you didn't know that. Okay. She, that's, I'm, uh, I don't know if you're supposed to do that, but I did it. Okay. So, uh, well, family here, they had a baby last night. Good. Send them a text. Don't do it right now. Uh, and, uh, but you come into the world curvetous and say, you don't have to teach your kids how to do that. We come like that. Our first father, Adam, broke our DNA, separated us from God. We can't fix ourselves. We're dead in our sins and our trespasses. Okay, you get that? You tracking with me on that? Okay, good, because we got a lot of ground to cover. Um, and, and the reality is, is like, if you're really going to get that, you got to get that we weren't just in big trouble. Okay. Being dead in our sins and our trespasses is not being in big trouble. People love rescue stories. People love them. Uh, you know how I know that? Raise your hand if you remember when a bunch of soccer players in Thailand got stuck in a cave, like last summer. Raise them high. 
Okay, good. Most of you, if you didn't, okay, it's because you were really disconnected from the news, all right? The news had nothing better to say than that these kids are still in the cave or they're out of the cave. And you know what? Spoiler alert, they got out of the cave. It was amazing, all right? And in the process, 10,000 people, 10,000 people were mobilized to help rescue those kids out of that cave. Do you know that? That was a ton of people. And it included people like Elon Musk. Elon Musk was like, you know what? Maybe we'll build an underground submarine for individuals that we can float them out. He was just trying to put his Elon Musk to work, you know, doing whatever he does. And then Bear Grylls was reaching out to those folks saying, hey, uh, we are here if you need any extra help. And I'm like, dude, if we can get Bear Grylls on our team, that's a win, okay? And uh, I love Bear Grylls. Um, and uh, if you need any, help, any extra help, but here's what struck me. It actually, this, it's like brought me to tears. Uh, my spiritual condition was beyond rescue. Your spiritual condition, it wasn't, you were just in big trouble. You were beyond rescue. And if you don't believe me, take a shovel to a graveyard and see what happens when you start trying to dig people out. You're going to get arrested. You will. You're going to get arrested for doing that. And I can tell you this, Bear Grylls is not going to come help you. You're going to get arrested. You're going to be potentially put in some kind of a facility. Um, It's the same thing as if you were sitting at a funeral and the people around you were crying and, and you're kind of like looking pretty chipper and you're like, hey guys, I'm still holding out hope. Maybe there's a chance. That's the opposite of what a funeral is. A funeral is saying there is no more chance. It is done. There is no more life here. You are not able to be resuscitated. That's what it means to be dead. Okay, and so there is no hope. That's what we're saying spiritually. There was no hope for you. Some will say that that's not fair for Paul to sort of just lump everyone in together. Uh, He doesn't just sort of do that. He totally does that. He says all of mankind is here under God's wrath. And uh The reason why he can say that is because there's not degrees of death. It's not like you're kind of dead. Nobody is kind of dead. If you're kind of dead, that means you're kind of alive, and so you're not dead at all. Okay, it's a binary situation, and so uh, you might be barely holding on to life, but but if you are, then 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 you're not dead. But if you are dead, you're hopeless. And it doesn't matter where you were born, what your parents believed, how much money you give away, how many times you show up to church. It doesn't matter. You were born dead spiritually, hopeless. And you're not kind of dead. You're totally dead. That's what your story was. Charles Spurgeon says it three way, this way. He says, uh, in the scriptures, Jesus resurrected people, uh, three different dead people. One was a tiny girl who had just died. One was a guy who was on his way to be put in a grave. And one was a guy who'd been in his grave for days. Now, there were different ways that those people looked. Jairus' daughter, she didn't look so bad. She was still probably warm to the touch when he said, Talitha kumi. The guy who was on his way to the funeral, he probably was wrapped up but didn't smell bad. But Lazarus, they said, don't open that up. He's going to stink. So your level of corruption may not look like everybody else's, but that doesn't change how dead you are. So here's the deal. The problem with this, if you get, a di- if you get the diagnosis of your spiritual history wrong, if you get the diagnosis wrong, you're going to get the solution wrong. Okay? You're going to get the solution wrong. You need to see this rightly, okay? Because you're going to have to understand the, the, just the sort of power that's about to be unleashed on you in the scriptures to fully grasp the conditions in which God was acting in the following verses, okay? And so we don't need encouragement. We don't need more education. We don't need more uh, rediscovering of ourselves. We don't need to go to church more, okay? We needed a miracle. And a miracle is precisely what we got, okay? So what was the problem? We were dead. What is the process? We are saved by grace, 
Okay, we are saved by grace. Verse four, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Okay, just read it again. But God being rich in mercy, remember you were dead, entombed in your own desires. God being rich in mercy, why? Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. What happened? God did something. You did not do anything in this verse. God did something. What he did is he made you alive again spiritually. Why? Why did he do it? Because you have a ton of potential? Why did he do that? Because of his great love. Uh, I've been watching a lot of Frozen, guys. A lot. More than you can imagine. And um, there's a surprising theologian mixed into the bunch. He's a snowman named Olaf. And uh, he helps... Princess Anna answered this question. She's like totally confused about what love is, right? As most Disney princesses are. She's like, I don't, she has this moment. She literally says, I don't even know what love is as her heart is turning to ice and a lot of other weird things. And uh, Olaf, he says, love is putting someone else's needs before yours. I was like, shoot, Olaf. (laughs) That's exactly what Jesus did. That's exactly what God did. You got to get this, that when it says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. I just want to reiterate, how did he do it? How did he do it? Because of his great love, he was rich in mercy. That mercy, that word mercy, that's about taking action towards something. That's not just a, a, a nice feeling. That's a feeling. That's a belief. It's a disposition towards action that's going to be costly. Okay, and it says God was rich in mercy because of how much he loved you, willing, willing to do this where he would say, I'm going to send my son to bleed for you. He took a blood oath for your soul is how much he loved you. That's how he accomplished it. It was where you had put yourself in God's place. God put himself in your place. Do you see that? That's what happened with the gospel. That's the essence of sin, putting yourself in God's place, and the essence of the gospel, God putting himself in your place. In John 3, Jesus is talking to a guy named Nicodemus who's like the best teacher in Israel. He's like the Billy Graham of Israel. And uh, he, uh, he says, Uh, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What is he talking about? All the Israelites were getting bit by snakes. There was poison running through their veins. And God said to Moses, build a bronze serpent, serpent, hold it up. If people look at it, the poison won't kill them. So Jesus says, you know what I'm like? I'm going to be like that serpent. And I'm going to put up on a cross And all that poison that's running through your veins, you just have to look at me. My place. I'm going to be in your place. You get to take mine. That's how. That's how he rescues you. So God did something. He made us alive with Christ because of his great love. And it's so radical because of the awfulness of our state. Okay? 
If, you, if we were pretty good people, maybe, maybe there was a chance we weren't. It says, while, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were rebels against God, you might be, a, if you're like, wherever you're at with Jesus, like if, if maybe you're in a place where you're like, I'm actually opposed to God. I don't want anything to do with this. Or maybe you know some people who are. That does not stop God's love from going right into your soul. That's where he's actually gonna reach you at. That's where he reaches all of us at is when we are dead in our trespasses, okay? Uh, and, and so that's what this means when he says, by grace, you have been saved. Look at me. By grace, you have been saved. You weren't saved by other things. You were saved by grace. God's richness of his love, which means he loves you so much, it's going to fund his mercy. It's going to fund his grace towards you, where he's going to extend towards you unmerited favor. You didn't deserve the favor that God gave you. You didn't deserve for him to rescue you. You didn't deserve forgiveness. You deserve the opposite. You deserve to be under his wrath forever. But that's what the Bible is telling you this morning, is that by grace, unmerited favor, God decided to set his affections on you to rescue you for all of time. So he made us alive and then what? It says he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He didn't just bring you to life and give you a second chance. Let me tell you this a hundred times. The gospel is not a second chance for your life. If I got a million chances, if I got infinite chances, I would choose to run away from God every single time. And so would you. God doesn't give us a second chance. He gives us a new life and he puts us not just on our own to run around and see how you're gonna do. Here's what he does. He raises you up and what does he do? He seats you next to him on the throne of heaven. Ephesians 1.20, right before this, speaking of Jesus, says, God raised him up from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Whose right hand? The Father's right hand. Okay, so Christian, if you're in Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, not, not if you're a good follower of Jesus, that's the whole point of today. You might be a really bad follower of Jesus or a really young follower of Jesus or a really immature follower of Jesus. I don't even care, and God doesn't either. Does he want you to mature? Yes, but that's not the point today. You have been resurrected by the power of God at work through the resurrection of Jesus, and then you've been seated next to the king himself, which is a little bit confusing because you're like, I thought I was seated at 44, 49 Camp Bowie in this random building. I feel seated in this red chair, not a throne chair. So what does that mean? It means that legally speaking, in the courts of heaven, you have been seated next to the king. And uh, no matter how much you don't think you're worthy of it or how much you feel like a failure or how much you just want to give up or how much anything, you have a seat saved in heaven for you. You have a seat saved in heaven for you. Now here's the future tense of your story. That was the past. Here's the future tense so that in the coming ages, which ages? All of them. All of them forever to come. 10 billion, billion years from now. In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast.
What's the point of this? What's, the, what's, the, what's going to be the result of all this? That means forever, Christian, you will be counting the riches of his grace and kindness towards you. The example that always gets used with this, and I think it's like a funny one that it gets used because I don't think the Queen of England is all that wealthy, but she actually has a lot of money, apparently. And uh, kind of like, how did she get it? Do all the British people not think that they could just take it? I have like some questions about the governmental structure, how she has that much money, but it was like $4 billion or something like that. And uh, the wild thing about this is if you got a letter or you got a note or an email, if you wouldn't trust the email, I hope, but if you got some kind of a like stamped sealed letter that you opened, a lot of wax on it, uh, some sealed, maybe a guy with a hat brought it, you know, and you're like here opening this thing up and you're like reading, he's like, it's true. And it says, uh, the Queen of England has decided taken a blood oath to forever, for the rest of her life show all of the kindness that she can towards you. You'd be like, I guess we're going to have a good time. Like, I guess we're going to go out tonight for dinner. Like, it's like whatever partying looks like for you, okay? It's going to be a good time. But even then, she, her days are running short, so the rest of her life isn't that long. And her wealth compared to God's is not that great. But that is what God has said to you, that he has taken a blood oath to, for the rest of time, pour out his kindness on you. I, don't, I think the problem is not in the promise. The problem is in our ability to receive it. I don't think your soul is ready this morning to receive that kind of news we're skeptical or we are cynical or we are something, but we're not overwhelmed by that. And that's why I'm saying, come alive, come alive, come alive, dry bones, to believe that that is true for you. And so here's the hinge piece for me on this whole message. It's the word boast. This message hinges for me on the word boast. It's like, what a random word. It's in there, okay? And uh, that word doesn't, necessarily play out like we think where it's like I'm the best basketball player you've ever seen you know which is not true um but uh the deal is is I think that our tendency is actually to boast in something other than God's grace towards us that what we're most proud of or the thing that we want to present to the world or to God is not his grace towards us I'm not the object of God's unmerited favor and that's what defines my life no we want to boast in something Else. And so the word itself actually uh, carries with it the idea of what soldiers would do uh, way back uh, when they were going into battle. They would, they would look at something that would give them confidence to face their enemies. Okay? So if you're—I have jets flying over my house constantly, and they're loud, Okay? And, and so if we were going to go into battle as a country with some, or I was going to go into battle and the United States Army was coming behind me, you know, or the Air Force or the Navy, I would say, you know what I would boast in? I'm like, Those, I don't know what, what number of F that is. All the Lockheed people are like, F-35, buddy, you know, whatever it is. I'm like, that thing, that's going to win, okay? That's a pretty significant piece of firepower, all right? That's a massive thing. Or like you might be like, dude, you should see a nuclear weapon. I know there's a lot of other weapons that you could boast in, but the, the deal is spiritually what God is saying is that uh, you have nothing left to boast in besides God's grace. 
my flesh this week, I, man, I wanted to preach a good message so badly so that you could think I'm a good preacher. Do you know that? How stupid is that? That's what my flesh wanted. And so what I have chosen to do is I'm going to say, I care more about you hearing this message. I care if you see the power of these words. I care if the Spirit would in this moment convince you beyond all shadow of a doubt that God's love for you is so sure, so strong, so radical that it can resurrect your soul and take you, take you to the heights of glory. That's what I really, really want for you, to be convinced beyond the shadow of a doubt that that's true for you. You want to see joyful worship erupt in your life, to see it revived, take new ground, to see it advance God's kingdom in ways you could not imagine? Be convinced of God's love for you. It will make you invincible. Not against problems or pain in this world, but it will make you invincible spiritually because you will boast in the only thing that is sure. I care if God gets the glory for what he's done in your life, in your spiritual history gets the glory that he's due and uh, see what he's finished for you in Jesus. I, I care that you would see that this morning. And so there's a moment this last week I, tell, I felt like a total failure of a dad, a total failure of a husband, a total failure of a Christian. And so in this moment with my wife, I just told her about that. I said, here's how I feel like a failure. Here's the things that I failed in, how I've wronged you. And uh, Here's all the lies that I'm hearing, except they sound pretty rational to me. And uh, you know what she did? It was the craziest thing. She just came and sat next to me and put her arm on me and said, I love you. And God loves you. And you know what the enemy wanted to do in that moment? He wanted me to look away and not receive it. But the spirit in me, you know what he said? Look her in the eyes and say, I received that. God loves you. Your wife loves you. So here's, here's what I want to do. Just This is a crazy thing to do on, in a regular church service, okay? But I want you to just put your head down. And uh, ask yourself this question. Do you believe that God loves you? Do you believe that you were dead in your trespasses, unable to resurrect yourself, unable to offer to God anything, to do anything to save yourself? Have you been accused of something by the enemy this last week if you're a Christian? Have you been accused of being a failure, accused that God doesn't love you, accused that you're beyond saving? If you have, uh, I want you to do this. Just look up and look me in the eyes. And I think God has you here for this reason. To tell you that he loves you. It's not just something I'm making up on my own. It's not a good idea. God loves you. The proof is in the covenant that he made with you. You see, you have faith in Jesus to trust in him, not because you had a good idea. By grace, you have been saved through faith. And listen to this. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Friends, don't boast in anything this week, this year, for the rest of your life, except for the blood-bought promises of Jesus that he loves you forever and ever. He's raised you with him. He seated you next to him on the throne forever and ever. He does not love you because of what you have done or not done. 
He loves you because he decided to. And then his love fueled his grace towards you. And his grace sent his son to the earth and he lived a perfect life. And he died your death. And then he was raised from the grave. And in that you are promised resurrection with him. So here's the last thing I'll tell you. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Man, I know that you're trying really hard to be awesome. I know that you are. You don't have to be awesome. You just have to follow Jesus. And he has already created for you good works for you to do. You can open your eyes. And uh, I'm going to tell you one more thing and close this thing down. Um, you might have heard recently that Kanye West is a Christian. Uh, I, for one, agree that he is. I don't know him, but I know how people become Christians by grace, through faith. So I, I don't really care. I, I, I like a lot of the things he says are pretty encouraging. One thing he says is this. Uh, some, Jimmy Kimmel asked him if he's going to do Christian rap now. You know, you know what his answer was? I thought it was a really good answer. He says, I'm going to do Christian everything now. That's what it means to be a Christian. <laughs> You don't do Christian things. You, everything you do is Christian. That's what he says. Uh, you were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. So you just walk in them. You know what those good works are? Those are worship. Everything you're doing where God is at the center and you are not, that is worship. Every time you choose to uh, worship God by trusting and treasuring him above yourself, that is worship. Those are good works. I think we just probably don't really believe that God could use us to do great things. And so some of us need to remember where we came from, okay? You need to go back to the beginning of your relationship with God and remember that you relate to him on the basis of grace. Remember the past rightly. And then some of you, you need to hear the truth that God loves you. I just told you that. If you need to be told again, I will be right up here and I will tell you that as many times as it takes until you hear me but I know that God is able. Just ask him, just tell him. I looked at my baby girl this week before I put her down and uh, I looked her right in the face and I said, I like you so much. And I said, I love you so much. I think we kind of disconnect those things. You think God doesn't really like you very much? No, he loves you ferociously enough to send his son to die for you. Some of you need to be reminded of that. Remember the past rightly and then leave it there, friends. Don't carry that with you. He resurrected you from the grave. Now leave all the sin and shame there. And the last thing, some of you need to hear that God, he's got your story. He's writing out good works for you to do. You just have to walk in them. You don't have to try to make your life awesome. He has already made it awesome through Jesus. Believe me. Um, my, yesterday was my wedding anniversary, and um, we didn't get a chance to like celebrate it as much as I'd like to, which is a, kind of a fail on my end, but uh, it's because my wife's birthday is at the end of this week, and so I'm, I was like, we're going to double down on one of these, and she's, it's a big birthday, so let's do that. And, um, but what I love about anniversaries is uh, you don't just go back to, hey, what, what's been great or good about this last year? What, what I always end up doing is um, I go back to the, actually the day that I made the covenant with her. I go back to the beginning. That's where I go on our anniversary. I go back to the beginning of that relationship, back to the beginning of our covenant. And so this morning we're going to come and we're going to receive communion. And, uh, and so we get to do it every week. It's sort of like an anniversary every week, week anniversary, okay? Uh, but with our covenant with God, where you go back and retrace the lines. 
you were dead in your trespasses, but God, who, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved you, he made you alive together with Jesus. By grace, you have been saved. And then he raised you and seated you with him in the heavenlies. And so come this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus and, um, and you have uh, put your trust in him, which is, just means that you're going you're gonna, to uh, trust him with your whole life, that you're going to put all the weight of your life, all the weight of your hope in Jesus alone. Okay, that's what that means. Uh, then come and receive this and be reminded of a covenant that Jesus made with us through his blood. It was as sure as that. He says, I'm going to make a covenant in my blood that I'm going to love you forever, that I'm going to rescue you, that you're right with God eternally because of my blood. And you might be thinking, but we need to go do stuff. We need to go make her. Yes, yes, that's what Ephesians 4 through 6 is going to tell us. We got to go and we're going to live this thing out. But you will not live it out if you don't know it for sure. God loves you. And he loved you first. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you use... um, some part of this message. God, I don't even know what part you would use, but would you use some part of it to lift the souls, lift the spirits of the people in this room, God? Would you use this uh, truth from your scriptures, God, to help us to worship you with all of the joy that you have purchased for us in Jesus? Would you transform us? And would you, God, speak this message into the hearts of my friends this morning? You love us. And by grace, we have been saved. We don't have to worry anymore. We don't have to worry anymore if God's going to accept us or if he loves us or if he has good things planned for us or if he's going to come through for us or if we're going to be enough on that day or if we're good enough parents or if we're good enough at our jobs or if we're going to make enough money or if our future is somehow secure. We don't have to worry about any of that stuff because Jesus, you have saved us by grace. Would you help us believe that? Would you help us to worship in that? Would you help us to receive that even as we come and receive communion? God, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.